This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Working is supported by MailChimp. More than 7 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Teams can collaborate with MailChimp to design and track newsletters or just get work done easier. MailChimp, send better email. Find out more at mailchimp.com. Hello and welcome to Working, a podcast about what people do all day. I'm David Plotz. What is your name and what do you do? My name's Nina Kang and I am a software engineer at Google. That means I write code. How did you become a software engineer? I went to college in the mid-90s. The web was just beginning and I was pre-med, but I it turns out I have a pretty bad memory and I noticed that a bunch of my friends weren't studying for their tests. They had open book tests because um, they were all computer scientists and if you can answer the test questions at all, it's considered a, a win, no matter how many books you're referring to during the exam. That was exciting to me. I had done a little programming in the 80s in BASIC and Logo for fun, completely on my own without, um, without much help from teachers. When I saw how much fun they were having, um, I, uh, I decided to switch over and... Um, the stuff that I learned in school was kind of fun, but what was really exciting was the web. That was happening while we were there. And actually, a couple of my friends ended up getting um, involuntarily having to take time away from Harvard to refocus academically before coming back because the web was so exciting. We were staying up all night writing these primitive web pages in HTML. And one of the things that was the most exciting about HTML is that you can teach it to yourself 
because anytime you go to a web page, the browser has this view source command, and you can look and read what the source code is, and you can copy it straight into your page, and suddenly you've got a copy of that page. Then you can modify it however you want. And that was an opportunity to do self-directed learning on a scale I'd never seen before. What time do you usually get to work? Do you go to work? (laughs) I work in the office Mondays through Thursdays. I drop my daughter off at preschool, so I usually try to get in by 9, 10 or so. And what time do you leave usually? I leave around 5. And do you have time when you're messing around and, you know, web surfing the way, say, I do? Or is it, are you just like head in the whole time? Well, Google gives us so much latitude to design our work lives and the way we're most efficient. So I don't really surf the web very much during work because it doesn't work for me. Um, what I usually do is we have these sort of, the pace of coding is has a natural rhythm, which is like think, 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 write, 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 hand it off to the computer to run the code. And you pause a little bit while the computer runs the code and you see what happens. And then you, you find a problem and you think, 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 write, write, write again. What varies the most among people is what they do during that pro- that interval where they've handed off the code to the computer and the computer hasn't done running yet. So some people, you know, blow off steam by going and uh, socializing, like at a physical water cooler or in an internet water cooler chat board, or they might check their email. And um, for years, what I've liked to do in those small periods of time is to make very minute clarifying changes to the code base because my theory is that over a period of years, that builds up into a lot of work. And is that the minute changes, is that brainless work or is that actually intellectually demanding? It's not exactly brainless. Like It's the stuff you could do in your dreams, but I wouldn't mean that you could do it in your sleep. It, it might be like, there might be something that was, that's been nagging at you because you were working at something on Monday and you noticed that something wasn't quite right. It's not that it's not working properly, it's that it would be more readable or easier to fix. I guess my question, to ask that a different way, is is that meditative work for you? Yeah, it's absolutely meditative work. Um, it's, it's relaxing, and it gives you that little dopamine hit of having done something. When you're reading code, is it as clear as if you're reading English? If I'm reading C++ code, it's clearer, because um, English has ambiguities, and C++ is designed to have as few of those as possible. If I were to read... Um, Erlang or Prologue, which I am much, I'm very much out of the habit of reading, it looks a little bit like Mandarin to me. I have a little reading knowledge of Mandarin. It takes me a couple seconds to process each character. The thing is that I think that I, I sincerely believe that you, David Plotz, after an eight-hour class would be able to read that code. But um, in order to learn how to write code, these days, you have to be able to Google how various code libraries work and read what other people have written and skim their code and digest some sort of consensus about what it is that you should be writing. And that's, uh, that's sort of an analog to speed reading that is, um, is what you need to learn. Moving from this reading to, to writing question, what is it when you're writing code that makes particular code really good? It depends on the situation and the company. Um, Google is a very collaborative company. There were, you know, almost a thousand programmers on Google Maps. To my mind, what makes code good is that it is um, almost anonymous, that you shouldn't be able to read that code and say, oh, you know, Kevin down the hall wrote it. Because if he did, if it's idiosyncratic in that way, it means that 
it's not something that's going to be so easy for other people to modify. Everyone should write in a uniform enough style within a team that we can easily grasp each other's code and modify it. And um, there are a couple things that I look for when I'm looking at code. One of the things is how, how few lines would it take for it to be modified. Code that requires a lot of repetition. Some people find that poetic, but I find that tedious because it means you have to modify it in each of the repeated, uh, repeated places. Great word there, poetic. What does that mean when you say some people find it poetic? Computer programmers pride ourselves on writing elegant code or poetic code, but usually what that means is writing code the way that the individual programmer thinks is good, and that is incredibly subjective. I once worked with a guy who wanted to write code where every line was the same number of characters, and he would name variables in things like, you know, words that you were leaving out vowels from so that his variables could be the same number of characters. But nobody else in the team thought that constituted poetic code. I think that poetic code is code that you can read, and that means that it's uh, the line breaks are in a place that make sense semantically, that there are blank lines between blocks for functional reasons. When some something that's going on is not particularly intuitive, then instead of comments, um, and comments in code are pieces of English inserted between special characters that tell the uh, the compiler not to read them. And some people rely heavily on comments. But um, what you find when you're working on a code base that's changing a lot is that people will update the code and not update the comments, so they can be extremely misleading. So what's better than comments is code that what we call soft, self-documenting, where the variable names are clear enough that you can infer what's going on without needing any English. This episode of Working is sponsored by MailChimp. More than 7 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Teams can collaborate with MailChimp to design and track newsletters and just get work done easier. Plus, MailChimp distributes hats for cats and small dogs. You can find out more at MailChimp.com. MailChimp, send better email. Going back to this question about you, the, you talked about the, you wouldn't want to be able to identify code as being having written by Kevin. Will great coders come up with very different solutions to a problem than non-great coders? Absolutely. Great coders come up with solutions that are usually more concise and more easily verified. I think the the key metric is, can someone else read this code and confirm that it works by building a mental model in their head of what the computer is going to do at different steps? There are certain things that are really simple, like finding out how many characters are in a line that you could write in a way that would confuse everybody. But if your code is well-written, people understand what it does, and they can tell that it works right away. So elegance is, to your mind, corresponds with clarity and concision. Yes, absolutely, just like English. But in English, we do pride ourselves, writers. As a writer, I pride myself on having a style that is distinctly my own. Do coders... Should coders pride themselves on having a style that is distinct to their own, or should they pride themselves on having a style which is so clear that it appears to have no style at all? 
Um, I think a mix of both. I think that if you have a style that's distinctly your own for good reasons, that you'll find other people who work with you adopting that style and your style will abruptly be less individual. And I think that's a sign that your style is good. Um, there are other, you know, literature has certain qualities that good code should never have, like deliberate ambiguity, repetition for uh, rhetorical effect, um, uh, saying things in a slightly different way when you repeat them. I, I'm hard pressed to think of why that would be good in a team coding setting. That's. Are you a reader of literature? Yeah, I have an MFA in poetry from Warren Wilson. Oh, that's great. So, uh, do you write poetry? Yes. And do you, when you write poetry and when you write code, are you doing the same thing? My poetry is actually weakened by my coding style. And um, there are certain poetic devices that I have a lot of trouble with using, I, that I have to deliberately try to force myself to use because they would make for bad coding style. Um, rhetorical questions, repetition, uh, rhyme, convoluted syntax. It's so important in poetry to be able to surprise the reader. And in coding, you can surprise the reader for good effect, but you want to do it through, uh, through new clarity and new concision. And uh, in poetry, the range of things, of emotions you want to give the reader is so much wider than that. Have you ever read a poet and thought, this is like great code? Never, I've never read a good poet and thought that. So you're talking about the, the, the writing. We're talking a lot sort of about the, the style of it. When you're, doing, when you're trying to solve a problem in code, how much of it is the actual writing? How much of it is figuring out logically what the problem is and the kind of questions to ask to get it? So how much of it is, I guess, the, the algorithm and how much of it is the execution, the writing of it? Uh, that's an extremely important question. Um, I think that for a good coder, you're going to spend more than half your time figuring out the best way to do something. And um, the amount of time you spend writing what the final answer is should be like 10% or something tiny. I think a lot of us go through various drafts, various implementations. You might try a specific way of writing it, and then you look at what you've typed, and it's just too long, too hard for someone to understand. But having written it gives you insight into how you might revise it to make it more readable. What do you think you would be doing if you weren't a coder? Well, I actually took three months off, and um, I wrote an article for Salon. I found writing essays pretty rewarding, but not as rewarding as coding. It was just so open-ended, and you don't have that sort of tight collaboration with the computer to validate you. And I did a little yoga, and I did gardening. Now, pruning and weeding is a lot like coding, especially maintenance coding in a company like Google. I have this grapevine, and it's sending out tendrils very aggressively. And the way the vine works is, you know, it might have three different stalks. Each stalk is sending out tendrils almost at random. The tendrils are twining on each other. And even though they don't need each, the vine stalks don't need each other for support, they've ended up in this sort of tightly nested space. And that's actually something that can happen to code, especially in a company as big as Google. You don't want to write this one function. You'll see that someone else on the other team and on another team wrote a function just like that. And you go send out you know, a reference and you link in that function into your own code. 
Now the other person wants to change their function and suddenly they're stuck. They can't change it too much without changing your code too. And now they have a pickle. The process of un untwining those little tendrils and chopping down my stocks felt a lot like what I have to do to decrease other people's reliance on my code sometimes. So you're a, you're a woman and you're a software developer. Do you think there is any way you obviously work differently than other people because you are a different person than other people. Do you think the fact that you're a woman has any relevance to thinking about how you work differently or how your working style or what you're good at? I don't think there's anything in me that makes me different from a male programmer. I do think people relate to me differently because I'm a woman. But um, uh, one example would be, especially now that I'm a mother, um, one role that people feel very comfortable... Women leaders need to be in certain slots for people to feel comfortable, and one of those roles is the maternal role. So... If I am going around asking people, have you done your work yet? And I'm doing it in a way that they can see as motherly. It's more comfortable than as, you know, some young woman trying to nag them. Another thing is that there's sort of an expectation that uh, women will be better at collaborative tasks, at mentoring, at documenting and explaining things. And there certainly have been times in my career when I was good at those tasks and there'd be other, you know, year periods where I was in a more solitary mode for whatever reason. And um, definitely, I think uh, people can relate to me like they understand me better when I'm slotting into those sort of pink skills a little more clearly. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. On the next show, I'm going to talk to Andrew Rubin, who's a principal of a KIPP school, a really interesting, successful charter school in Houston.